I think the biggest thing for me when it comes to things to be aware of running outside of your home area is just simply be aware of your surroundings. Know that not everybody is going to be watching for runners or pedestrians in a general sense. So be mindful that, you know, there are people who just aren't paying attention to you. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Enby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. It's November, and I'm not living in the UK's second greatest urban area anymore. Not that you'd notice. My local park runs course flooded for the second time in about five weeks this weekend. They do have an alternative route to avoid the ducks and geese where necessary. And at least one of the named storms that's passed recently has ruffled up the artificial turf on our balcony like a duvet after a particularly restless night. <sighs> Cripes. So, because my last podcast was a standalone dedicated pod, I've got a whole host of housekeeping life updates for you, because a lot has happened, and some of it quite fundamental. Don't worry, it's all good stuff. I never know how my housekeeping vibes vibe with you all, as it's all quite self-absorbed and lengthens the podcast, but equally, I'm a personality podder, not a travel podder, and I always felt it was important to know more about the NB behind the microphone, much like how it's always interesting to see what Instagram influencers are like when they're not posing in a sundress in front of a famous monument. It gives a sense of the authentic. It shows that there's real people behind these posts. I do not have a sundress. I've never found one in a size that I liked. I suppose the most important thing to note about my realism in the past month, though, has been... I got my hair coloured. I finally managed to get to Glasgow without too many delays, and spent a shade over four hours in a small room in an arts crafts collective in Pollock Shields, getting my hair bleached and then coloured. I learned, because it's not something I've ever done before, that bleaching hair doesn't turn it white, but actually a quite cool but vibrant yellow. The colour of healthy urine, which, I guess, when you think about what bleaching actually is, makes a weird amount of parallel sense. Anyway, when she added the colour, it at first looked you know, quite dark blue, but as it dried, the purple became supremely vibrant. It was pretty much exactly what I was hoping it for. It also made me look about ten years younger, and far more lesbian. Which, also, well, maybe. Hmm. I was fearful beforehand about how long it would last, and had expectations of it, you know, lasting three days and then fading to brown. But over three weeks later, and people are still wowed by it. So yesterday... In terms of when I've written this pod, I had a couple passing me in the street and I overheard one of them saying to the other, why don't you get your hair dyed like that? And then while sat at a table outside a pub last night, two chaps came over to me and asked if they could have a selfie with me because of my hair. It's kind of weird being so much more noticeable, but it's doing great things for my self-confidence. The only downside is, you know, being a middle-aged male-bodied person is that my hair is receding a bit and I'm getting a bald spot, which is slightly irking me. But I'll have a ponder about what to do about that. One of the reasons for getting it dyed when I did was because I knew this month would be pretty social for me, so I wanted to look my most... my most me, I guess. At the start of the month was the World Travel Market, an event at the Excel in London where lots of travel companies and tourist boards come together to promote themselves and try to get business. I've mentioned it many times on this pod before. It's a 
Kind of weird place for a travel-oriented content creator, but we count as media, which helps in conversations. Anyway, I had a couple of interesting chats, but mostly I was there for networking, since I'm far too disorganised to plan out exactly what it is that I want and what I need to sell myself as. I probably said that last year, too. And every well-travelled market since 2018, I suspect. The weekend after World Travel Market, I met with a bunch of kingsters in a pub in Liverpool. Well, that was the Saturday. The Sunday was somewhat more hands-on, literally. I did mention this in my pod two episodes ago. I went to a small gathering in what is normally a swingers club in the industrial suburbs of Birkenhead for a uh, tickle play party. If any Full Swap Radio podcast listeners want me to guest appear on their pod and talk about tickle play, hit me up. Anyway, it was much less angsty and much more open and friendly than I'd been fearful of. But it's a perfect example of why I moved to Manchester, and proof of the success of my social media strategy. These are things I've always been interested in turning up to, but was always conscious that being an introverted male-bodied person who didn't know anyone meant I feared I'd just be sat on the edge looking lost and quite obviously out of place. So I joined the Discord servers, started to chat to people, went on voice chats, got to know them a bit. So um, even on the Saturday in the pub much meetup, I was still anxious about turning up, not knowing what any of them really looked like, and being worried that they'd all be talking to each other and I'd not be able to say hi, or, you know, that there'd be several different groups in there and I'd be nervous about introducing myself to the wrong one. In the event, I walked down the stairs into the place where they were meeting, and they saw me and shouted my name. So that was a very good help. They recognised me before I'd even go off the stairs to look around. It was the her, mainly. It always helps to stand out when you're a socially anxious introvert. But yeah, we chatted for several hours, so when we all met up outside the play party venue the next day, even though I was arriving on my own again and still a little nervous about it, they were there before me, and it was fine. I was still slightly worried that they'd end up doing their own things once inside, but if I learned anything from the event, it was that this particular community is very friendly, casual, and inclusive. I have an upcoming episode on love and sex on the road, so I'll keep the deets of the event itself for that, as it's definitely related. So if you want to know more, you'll just have to wait a month or two. I actually met some of them again yesterday in another pub munch in Leeds, same as last Saturday really, chatting a pub about not necessarily kinky things and drinking beer and cocktails. It's weird, is Leeds, for me, since it's pretty much a city I've visited several times, but apart from the University Open Day I went to in 1993, where I got quite lost, I've only ever gone there to drink beer. To be fair, it has a lot of decent pubs and breweries. We ended up last night in the brew tap for the nearby Osset Brewery, but there are many others. Another group of people I've met up with recently were the local asexuality group in Manchester. I didn't go to their meet-up last month because they were doing a film night and I don't do films, but this month was a discussion about a recent Stonewall-initiated report into asexuality and its presence in things like media and healthcare provision. There were, what, nine of us there meeting in the back room inside a museum, which I got lost in. The theme here. And while I knew less about them because their online presence is quite quiet, I still felt, because I'd already made contact with them, that I wasn't going in totally metaphorically blind. It was a pretty good discussion too, and I think it was also a couple of the other people's first time going. Next month's a board games evening. They like to mix up the event types so that everybody's interests feel included. All that remains, for the regular main part at least, is the non-binary night, but I think that's always fallen thus far on days I'm not around. And next month will be the same, given I'll be away in Southeast Asia on a backpacking trip whose routing makes no logical sense if you looked at it on a map. But that's what you get when you only have 12 days and a travel partner with very specific tastes and needs that are far away from each other. I do hope she appreciates Laos. I need a calendar. So, 
I've been meaning to do a pod specifically about running for a while. It's something that I mention quite often in my housekeeping, and though also tangentially, I hate that word, and I have never been able to pronounce it. Tangentially. I really want to say tangentially, but that's a very different issue. Full swap radio listeners. Mm. Anyway, I've also talked about that, in that word, in several smaller sections on pods covering a wider remit. And as such, some of what I've talked about now, you'll have heard before. But I felt it was the right time to cover this topic again now. Even if I've not done parkrun for a couple of weeks due to weather or logistics. I've always been a runner. Well, I mean, that's not entirely true since there's a large part of my middle life where I did an actual run quite infrequently. But in principle, I started running when I was a teenager and still do it now with almost the same level of dedication. Albeit about three minutes a mile slower because, you know, I was actually fit in those days. I'm not quite sure why I fell into running in the first place, though. I think it's partly because it was about the only sport I didn't suck at. Like, I went to a private school that had an ex-England Rugby Union International as its primary sports teacher. We didn't get along. And if you've ever seen me, you'd know that rugby would not be my sport. There were few alternatives. Field hockey was a distant second, but does anyone really trust me to wield a big stick at a solid ball and not break anything? The same went for cricket in the summer. Those of us who were not gifted at any of these sports, and possibly dyspraxic, ended up in a catch-all group called Rugby Extras, which was a kind of a we-don't-really-care-about-you-so-we're-just-going-to-make-you-do-rugby-anyway-and-laugh-at-you-while-you-fail kind of group. And you wonder why many kids get alienated by sport. Anyway, part of that was cross-country running. There was a cross-country team, but of no real regard and provenance. It existed mainly because it had to, not because anyone wanted it to. And there was no dedicated running squad at the time. It was literally just those people who finished in high positions in the annual school cross-country run. Most of the other kids hated doing cross-country running and either walked or just skived altogether. The route passed close to several of their houses, so popping home for an hour was regularly done. But for whatever reason, I kind of clicked with it. Near where I lived is a pine forest and red squirrel nature reserve. And my uncle used to take the dog for a walk in an evening. You know, he'd drive me there and I'd run home on one of about four routes, which was a distance of between three and five miles, either through the woods, along the sand dunes, or on the main road, depending on how I was feeling. And I felt free. I didn't enjoy my school career, for a variety of reasons my therapist is fully aware of. But on those trails, I was alone and able to be the person I wanted to be. That's why I have an affinity for pine forests even now. I'm pretty sure anyway. In addition, even then, I liked walking in general. I'd occasionally go for decent length walks around the town or through the country footpaths. Just south of where I lived was a dead railway line that had been turned into a long distance footpath and used to walk along it a bit. Sadly, it's not the most exciting walk given that that part of northwest England is a flat, mossy plain that a rise in sea levels will only make more aesthetic. It's not the most boring part of England, but only because the fens around Elia are considerably bigger. That railway line had a station on it called Mossbridge, which I've genuinely no idea what it served, since it was where a road through the moss heading east-west crossed the line heading northwest-southeast. That was it. Possibly it existed just to write something on a map to fill the space, a kind of 19th century here be dragons. It closed in 1917 and no one really noticed. There was another line to the east that ran from Altcar to Southport, which had a station at every road bridge, with names like Plexmoss Lane Halt and New Cut Lane Halt, I often bemoan the loss of much of the UK's rail network, but even I have my limits. Something, something ADHD. Anyway, 
So I'd always had that vibe of just going out and being on my own, of going somewhere by foot just for the sheer pleasure of doing so. It's also, I guess, why I like hiking, and maybe surprising that I never connected the two and took up neither fell running nor ultramarathons. I guess my dyspraxia and my consequent unwillingness to go down slopes at high speed doesn't help either of those, to be honest, although the latter has been in my mind since my hike across Great Britain in 2019. Later on in my school career, something unexpected happened. The way sports worked at our school was that there were several groups of skill levels within sports like rugby and hockey, and there'd be a teacher or two assigned to each group. These teachers maybe knew little about the sport, because their specialist subject was like maths or French or something, but they were there to oversee and whatnot and make sure we didn't kill each other. Two new teachers joined and were assigned into cross-country running. Presumably they'd said something at their interview that the headmaster took offence to. One was a casual hippie-like chemistry teacher. The other was a history teacher who was ex-army and had a real chip on his shoulder about that whole experience. The impression I got was that both very quickly took a bit of a dislike to the school in general and reacted in the most unexpected way. As good cop, bad cop, and powered mainly by what seemed to be spite at the stuffiness and traditional nature of the school, and the way that the school source bought in particular, they turned the school's cross-country team from also rans, pun intended, into the sixth best in the north of England. We ended up sliding into a Saturday morning cross-country running league in Merseyside, running against teams of full-grown adults representing the likes of the civil service and the fire brigade. We finished third. I've no idea how long they stayed on after we all left for university, or whether the school still has a decent cross-country team, but for two glorious years between 91 and 93, we were noticed, and the school didn't really know what to do with us. I kind of fell out of the running vibe when I went to university. I tried getting back into it, but I never quite managed it. In a sense, the walking kind of took over. I'd always end up walking for miles just to round it about for no real purpose other than to go around roads I'd never been down before. Often these walks ended in pubs, and maybe one of the reasons I walked more than I ran was so that I could do things like take my time, see places more than just in passing, and visit things like pubs and shops that I'd not otherwise get a chance to experience if I ran past them at speed. It also meant I could carry a bag. I hate running with a backpack. Another reason I've never gelled with ultra running, I guess. I still walked quite quick, though, and could knock out a decent jog when necessary. Sometimes, though, I just see it as a weird effort. Psychologically, it feels different to prepare for a run than a walk, even if there's no real practical difference in terms of, you know, I'm still going out to move at my own pace. I guess it's more the expansion of the energy and the effort. I feel like I have to feel fit to go for a jog, but not for a walk, even if my walks end up being far longer and spending the same amount of energy. And given this is a travel podcast, that kind of thing passes over to my trips away from home, where I'm oddly even less likely to go running. But there's a number of other reasons for that, which you'll now hear. You'd have thought I'd go running a lot when I was abroad, as it would be a good way to quickly orient myself in a new place. But to be honest, I tend not to. Partly because I'm always quite active anyway, and it's a lot easier to take photographs, etc. when walking. And I don't carry anything when I run, not even my phone. And this is actually quite an important point, and one where I know I differ from many other runners. Like, I've never got into the whole Strava thing, despite being a data analyst by career, and that should therefore be an easy application, and second nature for someone like me. And yet, and yet... So I'll generally plot out a route on Google Maps, but more so I can gauge a rough distance, and so I can have in my mind, you know, a rough routing. I don't really care how fast I've gone, or specific details about distance and time. Now, for runs at home, it doesn't matter if I don't have my phone, since I genuinely know where I am, or if I don't, I kind of know how to get back to where I am. But if I'm in a place I don't know, all I'd have to go on is, you know, a sketched route map based off Google Maps that I've written down on a piece of paper. And that would mean, you know, having to keep stopping to check it all the time just to make sure I was on the right path. And that relies on my transcription being accurate. There's no guarantee of that. 
Also, at home, there's a fair chance I'll have walked the route first. When I'm travelling, I might not have time to do that as well, and I'd rather explore a new place by walking than by running anyway. And thinking about it, that's probably a more important point. If I'm only in a place for a limited time, say three or four days, I'm going to be spending the majority of that time exploring the surroundings, visiting the sites and making maximum use of my time. This gives me less scope to actually go for a run, even if that run will only be for an hour or so. You know, there's preparation, cool down time either side, stretching, warming up, warming down, showering. And it would thus be incredibly inefficient to get lost while running in a new place as well. And quite embarrassing. Now, Stephen Erickson, who goes online under the name of Stephen on the Move, talks a bit about another aspect of running somewhere new, which avoids some of these dangers. While I've not been able to do this uh, when I've traveled internationally and run in places, one thing I do like doing when I'm trying to find a route uh, to run when I'm traveling in the U.S., if I'm not simply running city streets, what I might do is go talk to somebody at a local running store or just go look at their website and see if they have suggested routes or if they host runs uh, while I'm there visiting in town, because then that's an easy way to you know, know that, hey, I'm going to run with a group of individuals. I might not know these individuals, but they're all runners. And I feel like the running community you know, is fairly protective of each other and mindful about each other's safety. And so that's a good way to be able to run with a group of people, run in a space and place where you don't have to worry as much about your surroundings when you're in a place that you're unfamiliar with them. I've never done this, although I have travelled for parkrun, which I'll talk a bit about later, but it makes logical sense. I'm also aware of organisations like the Hash House Harriers, though I've never taken part in any of their runs. I only know them from being mentioned in passing during my trip to Southeast Asia in 2012, but it seems, despite having started in World War II era Malaysia and Singapore, it's a concept that's spread worldwide. There's 1,500 chapters, according to Wikipedia. The name seems to have come from the original venue in Malaysia that was casually called the Hash House because it served average food. When I was growing up, hash was a sort of mix of meat, usually corned beef, mashed potato and veg. Uh, it was all just mixed together in the same pot and served on a plate. This is pretty much the definition of average food. It's not very interesting, but it's functional, bulky and hard to get wrong. Anyway, Hash House Harriers, they're very much into the social side of running, with events that border on orienteering in the sense of following a defined trail with clues to the next directions, and generally put on events that mix running and beer. Most of their runs end in the pub, though you'd have thought this would have been right up my street, but I'm not that much of a social creature. Another aspect to running while travelling is to do with the more practical aspect of luggage. While this isn't so much of an issue for me personally, I know people often have specific running clothing. I tend to travel with only hand luggage, and I wouldn't have room for extra clothes that I might not need otherwise, so if I were to go running it'd probably be in the previous day's t-shirt and a running skirt or leggings don't take up too much room and could function as underwear anyway. When you travel with only hand luggage it helps if, you know, the more you have can be multi-purpose. I certainly wouldn't have room for running shoes if I wasn't going to use the same for generic walking around in. And that may surprise you, but back in the day I'd wear trainers as everyday wear, so it wouldn't have been a problem for me then. But many people don't do that. And shoes are bulky. Stephen talks a bit about this here. I think the biggest difference for me is the knowing that whatever fuel that I want to take for myself while I am running in general or racing on race day that I need to secure with me before I travel. So, you know, that's just a little bit of an extra step before race day to take it that I need to, to plan out, but isn't anything that's stressful or concerning whatsoever. As far as other issues that are different, you know, it's also that, well, if I'm not home 
or I'm not able to get anything from my house because there's nobody there to send anything to me, the biggest thing is to know that, okay, whatever race shoes or running shoes that I choose to take with me are what I have with me. So I can't swap out. And if you're a runner who has more than one set of shoes, that can be a little problematic because I have multiple running shoes and I use them for different things. So I have, you know, a set of shoes that I'll use just for racing. I have shoes that I use for a shorter, easier run. I have shoes that I'll use for a tempo speed workout type of thing. And and then, of course, I have shoes that I'll just walk around in, etc. And so having to think through, okay, what shoes do I want to bring? How many shoes am I going to bring? And then, of course, how does that affect how much space I have in my luggage uh, is a little bit of a time consuming thing, but definitely not a bad problem to have if you enjoy being able to use shoes in a different format. Obviously, for those of you who know me, in general, that's not a concern when packing. And I'll mention this a bit later too. But I do have running shoes for less than ideal terrain. They're called Skinners. They're about three millimetres thick at the sole and made from some kind of fibre and polymer combo that I do not have the engineering expertise to explain. They give me the flexibility I get when running barefoot, but without having to worry about loose pebbles and the like. They're also not very rigid, so I can fold them up and stick them in a pocket or down my crop top if I feel like I don't need them on a run. Skinners do not sponsor this podcast, but that's something I ought to work on. I'd say that's a subtweet to my VA, but it turns out she doesn't listen to the episodes very often, so she might not notice. From running while travelling to travelling for running, in the sense of specifically visiting a place for the purpose of going for a run. Again, we'll talk about park run later, but here I want to talk about visiting somewhere for a big race. Which is something I've never done at all intents and purposes, but Steve Biggs, who's online at Bigsy Travels, does this on a regular basis. However, for the purposes of his contribution, he's deferred to one of his big running influences. When I was asked to contribute some thoughts about travelling for running events, I did have a few personal anecdotes up my sleeve. But instead, I thought I'd focus on my dad Roger's exploits. He's run 913 official marathons. Yes, you heard that right. 913 marathons. If you like a good stat, that's equivalent to running 96% of the way around the equator, or it's slightly further than running from Dublin to Queenstown and back again. 913 sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, compared to my frankly disappointing six, but it's not even close to the world record of over 2,000. But my dad was the first Brit to run a marathon in every one of the 50 US states. I wrote a blog post about him four years ago and asked him why he travels so much to run them. His answer was that if you've been somewhere, you have an opinion of the place. But like anything you collect, once you start, you can't easily stop. So his hobby has led him to many places he wouldn't have necessarily considered before, including a lot of those 50 US states. When I asked him what he gets from running a city that you don't get from normal sightseeing, he answered with one word, atmosphere. I can vouch for that. New York is pretty epic, but running in the New York City Marathon added a totally different dimension to it. I distinctly remember mile 20 and a DJ mouthing into his microphone, Welcome to the Bronx. Apologies for the bad accent. I also asked him how he keeps his running mojo going, and he simply answered travel. It's travel that's been the incentive to keep going. Why run a marathon around Milton Keynes? No offence Milton Keynes, it's actually a great course when you can run a marathon around Honolulu or Reykjavik. And due to who's hosting this podcast, 
I finally asked if he'd ever considered running barefoot. Another one-word answer. No. I'll be doing a future podcast episode about Milton Keynes. But aside from that, he raises a great point. Because running events take place all over the world, it gives you a great reason and excuse to maybe go to places that are less attested and visited. I mean, pretty much everyone's got New York on their bucket list. And while the New York Marathon is indeed an epic bucket list item for athletic people, not quite as many people decide to visit Bismarck, North Dakota. And something like a marathon gives you a reason to visit. yet to see and explore a place you might not have thought of without getting disappointed and bored at it being off the beaten track for a reason. It's not really that different to my having visited Liechtenstein to watch a football match in a way, an event that takes people to a place they wouldn't otherwise have thought to go. I don't know if many of my listeners hail from Bismarck, North Dakota. Let me know. As you might expect, Stephen Erickson has travelled for many such a run. However, for this podcast, he told me a bit on how he felt going into his first foreign marathon, back in 2021, including the trepidation before the start. And the interesting thing is, is that my first foreign marathon, my first marathon outside the United States was actually my first ever marathon, which happened to be the London Marathon in 2021. And I ran that marathon really before I understood a lot about running in a general sense. And I ran the London Marathon in 2021 because I ran for a charity. I ran for the Change Foundation, which is a UK-based charity that seeks to empower marginalized young people through sport. My wife and I have had a relationship with them since January 2019. I knew that they had charity runner spots for the London Marathon, and I had an opportunity to apply to be one of those people uh, back in early 2021. I did. I was selected to be one of two people to run and most importantly fundraise and help bring awareness to what the Change Foundation does. So why was I angsty? How was it traveling abroad for the race? And, you know, it's that weird thing where honestly, I have nothing else to compare it to for the perspective of it being my first marathon outside of the U.S. because it was my first marathon. I feel like any anxiety that I might have felt was because it was my first marathon, because what it meant to me to be able to run for the Change Foundation and dealing with the issue of getting from where I was staying in London to the race start. The London Marathon starts out near Greenwich, at least for most folks running the course. And so it's a long haul from wherever you might be staying in London out to that area unless you happen to be staying there in the first place. And most people that I've talked to and encountered typically don't stay by the start line. They stay elsewhere in town in the more touristed spots, of course. So everybody is, you know, taking time to get out to the race start. I didn't sleep particularly well that night, but I don't feel like I slept poorly because of it being a international marathon for me. I feel like I just simply was anxious because of running my first race and just dealing with the usual race nerves, if you will. I had a few concerns about making sure I could get to the race start appropriately, but I was, you know, thankfully close to a subway station, a tube stop. So I knew, you know, where to get started. I had written out on a piece of paper for myself, okay, here are all the stops where I need to go and transfer and so forth. And of course, I had to, to laugh that as soon as I actually made my way down to the platform to get onto the train, of course, what do I see? I see hundreds of other runners who are all in their race apparel, all waiting on the same train. And so really within an instant, the anxiety of, okay, am I going to be able to navigate to get to where I need to be to make it to the race start on time and have time to warm up and go to the bathroom and all those usual race things 
for me really quickly went away because it was the, oh, well, literally all I have to do now is just follow the crowd. So that kind of eased my fears really easily there. And I just stopped worrying about it. I, you know, chatted up a few folks who we all kind of, you know, three of us stuck together and kind of navigated our way to make sure that we all made it there. Even though obviously there were several other folks who were going, but we all had started chatting and just kind of progressed that way. I mean, it did him well. Every time I see his Instagram post, he's usually somewhere else doing a run. I've never run a marathon. It's on my list, but it's something that even I feel is going to be a bit more of a longer term thing. I've only ever even ran one half marathon, and that was a lifetime ago, when I was still a cross-country runner at school. I did the 1992 Southport Half Marathon, which didn't involve me travelling specifically, as I lived about four miles from the start line at the time. It's on my list. Poke me if I've not mentioned it by this time next year. And yes, Roger Biggs, I'd probably look to do one that's barefoot-friendly. Which reduces the available selection somewhat, let's be honest. In principle, if I'm away from home and I need some motivation and accountability to go running, the most obvious solution is to find a local parkrun and engage in what people call parkrun tourism. I talked a bit about parkrun in a couple of previous episodes of this pod. In my episode Get Outside, I talked a little about what parkrun is, while in a couple of Twitter space recordings on staying healthy while travelling and sport and fitness, I talk a bit about how I use parkrun to stay fit. However, I'm very conscious that, while the concept is universal, Let's get up in time to run together around a local park for five kilometres in the middle of a Saturday morning. Parkrun, as an organised event, is not. So let me just do a little bit of the basics first, just in case you haven't listened to my previous podcasts. The concept started in 2004 by a chap called Paul Sinton Hewitt, who wanted to do casual running following an injury. He was a marathon runner. Quite a good marathon runner as well, actually. He was doing it like two and a half hours, which I've never been able to even contemplate that. The first event was at his local park, Bushy Park, in south-west London, and 13 people took part. Bushy Parkrun still exists. It's taken place 957 times, so next year it's its thousandth, and the most recent event saw 934 finishes. People often go there for parkrun tourism because of its status as the first one. The concept spread very slowly. The second event at Wimbledon Common, 816 events to date, started in 2007, and a handful more began the following year. New ones are set up quite often, and it's always an exciting process. I remember when I was at Queen's Park, we, well, not me, but quite a few of the people who ran the Queen's Park park run set up one at Elder Park just down the road in Govan. And then they never came back to Queen's Park. Anyway. In simple terms, they're basically an organised casual run in a local park, or any kind of area, really. There's a couple on, like, um, seafront promenades and places like that. They encourage people to get out and do a 5k. That's it. That's in simple terms. You don't have to run it. The event finishes when the volunteer tailwalker crosses the line, and that could be at any time, though it's rarely longer than an hour after the start. The idea is a dual one. Get people into a community and get people to get outside and do some exercise. You do get a finishing time if you want one, but if all you want to do is just casually jog or stroll around the park with other people, you can do that too. Obviously you could do it on your own, but the point about Tark Run is that it provides you the accountability and community that might gently push you into doing it at all. Like, if I were doing my own training run and it was raining, I might decide to skip it and do something dry instead, which probably won't involve exercise, let's be honest. But parkrun will take place regardless of most conditions, so unless there's like dangerous ice or the route is flooded or something, know that there'll be likely a couple of hundred other hardy souls out there, and that encourages me to get out and join them. They're free to do, and you don't even need to sign up to parkrun as a whole to do it, though the advantage of doing so is that you get your own barcode so you can track your performance over different runs. 
Each event does rely on volunteers, though, to set out and take in the course marking at the start, like the signage, the welcoming banner, the finishing funnel, and the occasional traffic cone, and or those small coloured plastic line marker things that I don't know what the name of them is, but they're the small, like, dome-shaped ones that people use for fitness training. Anyway, them. Uh, we also have people volunteering to marshal the course, make sure no one gets in the way, and the three admin roles of timekeeper, token distributor, and barcode scanner. When you finish a park run, the timekeepers make a note of the time in an app. You then collect a token that indicates your finishing position, which you then take to the barcode scanners, who use an app to scan both that token and your own personal barcode. Jiggery Pokery, in the background, connects these scans to the timekeepers, and hence you get a time for your run. We'll come on to this shortly. There's now park runs across the world. While most of them are in the UK and Ireland, there's a large number of them in Germany, Poland, South Africa, Australia and New Zealand, and a not small number in Canada, the USA, Italy, Japan, and across the Nordic countries. There's even one in the Falkland Islands. Hello, Debbie. But not on either Ascension Island or St Helena, just for the record. They generally take place on a Saturday morning, 9am in England, 9.30 in Scotland, and I think 8am in Australia. There's also Junior Park Run, which is the same, but it's three kilometres on a Sunday morning for the under-15s. But these seem to be limited to the UK, Ireland, and a very small number in Australia. This obviously means that, certainly when I'm travelling around the UK, but also in certain other countries, it's possible to just turn up at a convenient park run and do a bit of a jog. I've never done a park run outside the UK, though in my case that's because the vast majority of places I tend to travel to don't have any. However, I've certainly done a few around the UK as I've travelled, including two in Belfast, one in Bedford, and one in London, Southwark, which would have been the ideal combination of flat, convenient and barefoot friendly, but it's also the most popular one I've ever done because it's flat, convenient and in London. And in big events, the first few hundred metres tend to be very slow as people get stuck in what can best be described as race traffic, unless you're at the front, obviously. There's two ways of being a parkrun tourist. One is that you just do whatever the most convenient one is to where you are. That's generally what I do. The other is, similar to people that do marathons in every US state, going to a specific parkrun because it's there. The most common reason for doing this is to try and run a parkrun beginning with every letter of the alphabet. Alice, known as Traffic Cone Llama on Instagram for reasons related to parkrun that you're really going to have to ask her about yourself, is very frequently to be found doing this. She told me the reasons about why for this podcast. So, why do I love parkrun, or more specifically parkrun tourism? On paper, I really shouldn't. 5k is my least favourite distance to run, and I love lions. I started off turning up sporadically, usually to meet a visiting friend or because there were special events encouraging fancy dress. And I love any excuse to wear fancy dress. I have a fabulous group of local friends who make it fun, and gradually I was sucked in. A smaller group of us started embracing parkrun tourism. We call ourselves the Parkrun Wankers and have a chat group where we decide where we're going each week. My friend Keith is the original parkrun wanker and he introduced me to the 5k app with all the parkrun challenges including the parkrun alphabet challenge where you have to run a parkrun beginning with every letter of the alphabet except X. There isn't one beginning with that letter. And pretty quickly I was hooked. When I'm in for something I go in hard full of enthusiasm with bells on. So straight away I was planning that alphabet completion and I now about 18 months later have only two letters left. E which, weather permitting, is planned for Edinburgh. And then I'm travelling to The Hague in the Netherlands to bag my letter Z at Zuda Park. That will be my first parkrun outside the UK, my 50th different venue, and I'm really excited. 
My family encouraged me too. It's because of them I'm going to Zuda Park, as it was a present for my 50th birthday this year. And my two boys came and ran with me when I celebrated my 50th park run on the weekend closest to that birthday at my favourite park run of all, my home park run at New Biggin by the Sea. New Biggin is my favourite, not because of the course, although the sea views are beautiful, but because the team who run it are incredible. They're everything that is good about parkrun, encouraging and supportive with a little bit of silly thrown in. Once my parkrun alphabet is complete, I'm not stopping. One of the other things I love about parkrun is its supportive, inclusive ethos, where you are celebrated more for taking part than speed. As a slower runner, I love that. And as much as I enjoy pushing myself for a time sometimes, I also love a slower social run or supporting someone else to do their best. And I've got a long and ever-expanding list of parkruns I want to visit stored in the 5K app. It's become a tradition to take a photo while jumping in front of the parkrun sign. I can't actually remember why that started, but there are many, many more signs to be jumped in front of. If you see me at your local, come and say hello and take a jumping pic with me. I'll be the one wearing a matching, brightly coloured skirt and crop top from Flancy, whatever the weather. OK, maybe I'll put a top on when it's minus four. I wasn't paying attention to her food one week, so liked a post without taking in the caption, which is why I was incredibly surprised the following week to be barcode scanning and have her say hello to me as I scanned her token. At the time, I was volunteering at Queen's Glasgow, which has one of only three queue park runs in the country, and argues the most accessible, the other two being in Belfast and rural Hampshire, is a popular venue for parkrun tourists. There's no Z park runs in the UK. Oddly, there's more queues than Ys. You may be interested to know, by the way, that although she recorded this not actually that long ago, she has now achieved both the E and the Z, and so has indeed completed the alphabet, accented letters in Eastern Europe aside. Alphabet tourism isn't the only form of parkrun tourism, but it's the most common reason for going to parkruns that aren't near your home. People might want to visit all the parkruns in a particular urban area or county, or even country, though that'd be tough in the UK. They may be attracted by lists of, you know, the most difficult or the most scenic. There's a couple by the coast that might qualify on both counts as they include runs up sand dunes, which were an integral part of my cross-country running training, and we didn't actively choose to do that. Or the most northerly, southerly, etc. parkruns in a country, or the world, which at the time of podding seems to be Pokinen Parkrun in Ulu in Finland, Cape Pembroke Lighthouse Parkrun on the Falkland Islands, Gisborne Parkrun in New Zealand, and Shawnigan Hills Parkrun on Vancouver Island in Canada. Apparently there's an app that has all manner of badges available for certain achievements, though many of them are based on the times you run rather than on the locations that you run in, like having finishing times that include all 60 possible values for seconds, and other geeky things like that. If you really want to tick off a parkrun, though, my poring over the parkrun event map suggests there is precisely one that crosses an international boundary. Not the Seven Bridge parkrun, as the border between Wales and England isn't, but rather the Seasend parkrun in western Poland, which crosses the Alta River that separates Poland and Czechia, ensuring that, technically, the latter has at least half a parkrun on its soil. It doesn't count, though, for how many countries this parkrun operate in, if any quizmasters are listening. Well, that's about all for this pod. Join me next time for another adventure beyond the brochure. Until then, don't forget your barcode, and if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited, and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. 
Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Uh, Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Thank you.